Um, again, I want to welcome all of our guests and all of our, our return visitors, especially. Man, just love, I love, we love seeing new faces and we love seeing repeat faces. Um, so, just as kind of a reminder, with the exception of last week, um, over the last previous weeks, we've, we've been going through a sermon series uh, that's based on a book called Streams of Living Water. It's by a guy named Richard Foster. It's an older book, it's about, it's about uh, 25 years old. Uh, but the basic idea behind Foster's book, and it's, it's, it's an idea that I agree with, is that there have been basically six primary streams. Throw that sl uh, slide up there, Carl. Uh, six primary streams or six primary traditions throughout the history of Christianity. In other words, there's been six ways that Christians have generally lived out their faith and their practice. Uh, most churches, most denominations, most movements throughout Christianity have been more or less focused on emphasizing one of these particular traditions or one of these particular streams, not necessarily in exclusion to the others, uh, but certainly over, over the others. So the basic idea here that we're, that we're, that we're kind of getting at through this series is, number one, we want to familiarize ourselves with each of these streams if we're, not already familiar, if we're not already familiar with them. And number two, though, we want to learn how we can incorporate the best of all of these traditions into our own faith and practices. So thus far, we've talked about a Three of them, I think, yeah. We've talked about the contemplative stream, which is, which is basically this idea about, of listening to God. It's is, is, is kind of the base foundation of the contemplative stream. It's a life of deep prayer, uh, deep scripture study and meditation on scripture, and, uh, and silence, uh, communicating with God, remembering that prayer is a two-way street. It's a conversation. It's not just us talking at God. It's us listening to God and allowing God to form us uh, into Christ's image. So that's kind of the base idea for the contemplative stream. The holiness stream is, is, uh, is, is, is what really the Methodist tradition is grounded in. I know that's kind of a weird word for some folks. It kind of might, 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 might turn you off a little bit because of, the, because of uh, uh, the visualization that a lot of us get when we hear that word holiness. But we're reminded that holiness is an inward attitude, is an inward place of being, and it's all about developing our heart. Uh, hearts, of, hearts that are grounded in love for God and love for each other. And of course, that grounding in our heart is going to manifest itself outside in different ways uh, uh, that we behave, of course. So that's kind of the idea of the holiness tradition. And last week, or a week before last, we talked about the charismatic tradition. We talked about uh, the, the, uh, the, in the uh, influence and the emphasis on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that has existed you know, since the church, since before the church, really, since before the Christian church. Um, and how we kind of we we, uh, we have those uh, particular streams today. Many of us have been have been part of those streams, and uh, it's about opening ourselves to the reality and to the presence and to the moving of the Holy Spirit. So as you can see, next down the line is the Strosal Justice Stream of Christianity. Now let me preface this with a little bit of explanation, because I know that that particular phrase, social justice has become heavily political and politicized, and it can turn a lot of people off. I'm not stupid. I'm not ignorant. I'm very well, very well aware of the fact that this has become more of a secular term than it has a religious term or a spiritual term. My, primarily, when we hear this term, social justice today, we think of a, political, a, a specific political ideology. Uh, that's generally accepted by the left side of the uh, political spectrum. I want you guys to get that idea out of your head, okay? I want you guys to get that idea out of your head for our purposes today and for your purposes of understanding Christian theology and Christian practice when it comes to this idea of social justice. So if that idea, if that phrase, social justice, kind of turns you off, if, if it kind of brings 
negative images to your mind, I want you to simply think of it as this. I want you to simply think of it as biblical justice. Biblical justice, because that's exactly what it is, and that's exactly what we're going to be talking about this morning. How to live out God's idea of what biblical justice, what we're calling social justice, really is. So I think it's going to help um, a lot of you guys if we kind of define this, you know, if we, if we begin defining what social justice is from a biblical or from a scriptural point of view. This is the definition that I gave you the first week uh, when we kind of went over the, uh, the preliminaries, when we started looking, you know, just kind of an introductory thing. This is the definition that I gave to you. Grounded in Jesus' call to care for the marginalized and the oppressed. The social justice stream compels us to actively engage in works of mercy and justice. And I got this next part highlighted because this is what we're talking about primarily when we're using these phrases, justice, biblical justice, social justice. It challenges us to address systemic injustices. Systemic, remember that word, and to be agents of positive change in our communities and in the world. So that's a very, very, very good definition, actually. Um, but I want to give you another one. I want to, because I think we can do a little bit better job of explaining this thing. Check out this next definition. Very similar, but I think it does a little bit of a better job actually breaking it down and explaining it. In a biblical context, social justice is often understood as the pursuit of fairness, righteousness, what we might refer to sometimes as equity, and impartiality. Again, I've got this highlighted and bolded for a reason. In society in society guided by the moral and the ethical principles that are outlined in the Bible it involves treating all individuals with dignity and compassion and addressing the needs of the marginalized and the vulnerable and promoting a society where justice and where mercy prevail social justice stream the social justice biblical justice stream of Christianity basically is our call to treat all people who are created in the image of God with dignity and with fairness. It's grounded in the principle of compassion. But God's justice, the type of justice we are called to live out, extends beyond our one-on-one -on -one relationships. And that's why I've highlighted these words, society, systemic, because this idea is bigger than us, and it's bigger than just our personal relationships with people. It extends to all of society. It's about advocating for people who may not have a voice of their own. It's about addressing systems. There's that word systemic. Systems within our societies that produce challenges to those people who are on the margins, the ones that Jesus referred to as the least of these in Matthew 25. God cares about how we treat folks, not just as individuals, but God cares about how we as Christians operate in society to make just societies and fair societies, treating all people with dignity and worth. God certainly cares, get this now, how we as Christians either intentionally or unintentionally participate in, promote, or benefit from those systems. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Let me give you one example of what I'm talking about based on one of the most well-known instances of God's judgment on a society that we find in the Bible. I don't know everybody in here, but I know, but I know most of you. Um, so most of you are at least somewhat familiar with the story of Sodom in the book of Genesis, right? 
So I'll give you the short version here if you're not familiar with that or if or maybe you've forgotten about it over the years. Um, but Sodom was a place. It was a, it was a city. We, remember, we call them Sodom and Gomorrah sometimes. But Sodom was a physical place. It was a city, and it was a city basically that was so full, uh, according to the story in Genesis, it was so full of wickedness and it was so full of, uh, of evil that God basically decided that it would be best to just destroy it. So this guy comes along, this guy Abraham, who's basically... Father Abraham had many sons. Y'all remember that song? So basically, basically, you know, the, the Old Testament father of, uh, of Christianity, right? So this guy, Abraham, here's the, you know, God understands that God's going to destroy this city. He's got a relative named Lot that's living in the city of Sodom, and Lot's a good dude, right? So, so Abraham comes to God, and they have this conversation, this story in Genesis. He says, God, you know, how about this? How about if we can find 50 people in, in Sodom? Will you still destroy it? And God says, no, you know what? If I can find 50 people in Sodom, we will, I'll, I'll, I'll leave them alone. 50 righteous people in Sodom, I'll leave it alone. And then, and then Abraham starts kind of getting into this bidding war with God, and he keeps dropping that number down a little bit. Well, God, what if you can find 20 people that are righteous? God says, all right. He drops it down a little, little bit more. God, God what, if we can, what if you can find just 10 people who are righteous? 10 people. God says, if I can find 10 people who are righteous in that city, I will, I will spare it. So anyway, the story kind of goes on, and uh, there's not a whole lot of kids. My son, he's here, but he can take it. <laughs> the, story, the story goes on, and it, gives some, it goes on to give some pretty graphic details. This is, an, this is an R-rated story that you find in the Bible. It goes along to give some pretty graphic details of some of the things that are going on, and, and it leads up to this scene where, uh, where the men of the town are basically trying to have forcible sex uh, with some other guys, and uh, who we later find out are actually angels. Anyway, uh, the city is eventually destroyed, and the story of Sodom becomes one that is, uh, that's mentioned frequently throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, the New Testament, and it's kind of a symbol, has become a symbol, becomes a symbol for man's wickedness and for God's retribution. Now, do not answer this out loud, church, but I want you to think about what you've been told and what you've come to believe. Why was Sodom destroyed? Why was Sodom destroyed, and what in the world does that have to do with what we're talking about today, social justice? I am sure, like me, y'all have heard over the years, sometime in your lifetime, that the primary sin of Sodom was its sexual immorality. I'm not going to deny that. It may very, very well have been part of it. But the problem with making that claim, the problem with making that assumption is the Bible doesn't say that. There's nowhere in the Bible that directly says that sexual immorality was the cause of Sodom's destruction. The only thing that the Genesis narrative tells us is that it was just a place that was wicked and full of grievous sin. Y'all can, can do your research on this one. I'm not, I'm not telling you anything crazy or I'm not telling you a lie. Feel free to do your own research. Skip forward to the book of Ezekiel the prophet in chapter 16. This is the only place in Scripture that gives us a direct reason for God's destruction of Sodom, that story that we've heard so often, so frequently throughout our lives, Ezekiel chapter 16, 49 through 50. The prophet writes, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. 
They were haughty. They did detestable things. We don't know what those detestable things are. They did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, as you have seen. That is the only place in Scripture that gives a direct reason for Sodom's destruction. Social injustice. Social injustice. Oppression of the poor and oppression of the marginalized. These are not talking about one-on-one -on -one relationships. These are talking about communities, societies, a systemic problem, a systematic problem, a systematic issue of injustice when it comes to those on the marginalized. Systemic sin, if you want to call it, societal sin. Sodom's society was arrogant, prideful, gluntness, and selfish. Does that sound familiar? I got one laugh out of that. Thank you, Wayne. They were unconcerned about the poorest among them. They were unconcerned about the marginalized. Were they downright oppressive to these people? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say that. We don't know it from this particular text anyway, but we do know that they were certainly neglectful. And this isn't an isolated incident. I, 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 I drew this particular incident out to, 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 uh, to, to give it some emphasis, folks, because I know it's a story that everybody's familiar with for the most part. This is by far not an isolated incident in Scripture, though, church. It is one of the primary standards for God's judgment of societies and nations that are found in the Old Testament. Let me repeat that. This is not an isolated incident. It is one of the primary standards of God's judgment that we find on nations and societies throughout the Old Testament. Check out this scripture from the book of Amos. As the prophet pronounces God's judgment on his own people, the nation of Israel. Do the next one. Amos 2, please. Amos 2, 6 and 7. This is what the prophet writes. For three, three sins of Israel, even four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver. They sell the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground, and they deny justice to the oppressed. I don't think that God could be any more specific about this. There is a systemic problem in this society that God's not down with. God has an issue with this, a big issue. Move on to Amos chapter 5. By the way, Amos is also kind of oftentimes referred to as the social justice prophet, and that's, there's a reason for that, obviously. But we move on to Amos chapter 5. And Amos doesn't mince words. And y'all, we've covered this act. We've actually covered this scripture before. Some of y'all may remember it. Some of you may not. <clears throat> but the, but uh, I think it's a good one to bring up from time to time just to remind ourselves. Amos does not mince words, folks. What does God want from us? What does God want from us, from his people? He tells us here through the prophet Amos in no uncertain terms. I'm going to read you a different translation of this in a second just to drive this point home to you. Amos 5, 21 through 24. Through the prophet, God says, I hate and I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies, they are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your hearts. But let justice roll like a river, and let righteousness like a never-failing stream. Let me read to you the translation. The uh, a different. Out of, let me read to you a different translation out of the Message translation of the Bible, which is a. Uh, it's kind of a modern translation. That's a paraphrase of the Bible, if you will. 
came out about 20 years ago or so, and it just it has more contemporary language. Even the language that's in it that in its now is kind of uh, is kind of old at this point. But he did a wonder. They did a wonderful job, I thought, of, of giving giving modern language, modern scenarios to these particular scriptures. Let me let me read this to you. Translated for the 21st century, God says, "I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences, and I am fed up with your conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects." your pretentious slogans and your goals. Now, that sounds like 2023 to me. I am sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations, your image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. I get the same feeling when I go to a lot of churches. When was the last time that you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all that I want. Amos doesn't mince words, folks. God's justice, biblical justice, social justice, whatever you want to call it, is all about restoration. It's restorative justice. It's not just about punishment. And I know that's what kind of what we think about a lot of times when we hear that word justice, is it, it, it is simply about punishment. That's not God's justice. It's all about restoration, restoring things to the way that God created them to be, advocating for societies and advocating for systems that are committed to enhancing the dignity and the worth of every human being created in the image of God. Societies and systems that insist on fairness and on impartiality. In the Old Testament, which was originally written in the Hebrew language, the Hebrew word for justice, and, I, and I'm going to murder this, I'm not going to pronounce it right, but the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, and it basically means it's, it's different than our, what we understand as justice in 2023 in the United States. Mishpat basically means actively taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and for changing social structures to prevent injustice. It means actually seeking out vulnerable people. I don't just mean vulnerable individuals. I mean vulnerable groups of people who are being taken advantage of and are being and are helpless. And yeah, advocacy on the behalf of others may very well plunge us into the political realm. Y'all know I'm not big on talking about politics up here. I certainly don't talk about partisan politics. I'll never tell you who to vote for or how to vote. But yeah, this is going to probably plunge you into some political beliefs. Our Christian commandments, our biblical commandments, our ideas of Jesus' commandments should form our politics, should form our social views, our political views, and what we stand for. Remember this, church. If you don't remember, if, if I leave here two years, three years, whenever y'all decide to get, get rid of me, if y'all don't remember nothing I've said since I've been here, remember this. We are not Democrats and Republicans first. We are Christians first. We are not conservatives and we are not liberals first. We are Christians first. We should stand out like crazy in the political realm. We should not be able to fit in with either one of those groups perfectly because neither one of them perfectly represent the gospel and neither one of them represent loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. I'll go a step further. If your primary identity... If you consider your primary identity to be a liberal or a Christian, I need you to stop that. A liberal or a conservative? 
I need you to stop that. I need you to back off. And I need you to realize your primary identity is in Christ Jesus. And our scriptural call to be what he calls us to be. Social justice from a Christian standpoint is not a secular partisan ideology. It is a scripturally based, God-ordained action on behalf of those that he loves. Our own John Wesley, founder of Methodism, as you all know, was a major advocate for the abolition of slavery. He got involved in politics. And I think that's a good thing. He was a major advocate for the abolition of slavery in the mid to late 1700s, over 100 years before the United States even considered it. This was over in England. He was a major advocate for that. He was a major advocate for prison reform back in his days. Methodism in general has a tremendous history of social advocacy. Let me throw out a few, more, a few other names that may, may or may not sound familiar to you. 19th and 20th century Christians. Y'all remember Susan B. Anthony? Silver dollar, silver dollar lady, right? She was another anti-slavery slavery Christian. She was also very prominent in the women's rights movement and advocating for the rights of workers and for laborers. Y'all may or may not have heard of William and Catherine Booth, who were the founders of the Salvation Army, one of the largest distributors of humanitarian aid today in the world. There was a Catholic social activist by the name of Dorothy Day. She founded the Catholic Worker Movement. She was a Christian proponent also of women's rights, and she was a proponent of nonviolence among many other social issues of her day. All of you have heard of Mother Teresa of Calcutta, Nobel Prize winner and one of the greatest humanitarians of the 20th century, spent the majority of her life in Calcutta, India, living among the poorest of the poor, the sickest of the sick, operating soup kitchens, medical clinics, schools, and orphanages. Most, one of the most obvious ones in some of your lifetimes, not quite my lifetime, was Martin Luther King, Jr., a lot of us forget that King was a Baptist minister. He wasn't just a regular run-of-the-mill civil rights activist. King was a Baptist minister, and his whole movement was based on racial reconciliation, racial justice, social justice, making sure that everybody received the same dignity and worth as everybody else in a non-violent way. That non-violent opposition was shaped by his understanding of the gospel, and certainly his issues, his stances on social justice were shaped by the gospel and by the Old Testament prophets. I know this is hard for some of us to swallow because we live in South Georgia. I get that. I understand it. But if it's hard for you to swallow, you've got to push back against this. Again, this is God's will. This is not Donald Trump's will. This is not Joe Biden's will. This is not the left or the right. This is the gospel, and this is the will of God. So how do you start doing this if you're not already starting, if you haven't already, if you're not already engaged in this idea of social justice? Number one, I would say start right here at Bemis United Methodist Church. We have plenty of justice-oriented and compassion-oriented ministries right here at Bemis. Get involved if you're not already get involved. Meet the people that we're serving. Encounter the people that we're serving. Converse with the people we're serving. Get to know the people that we're serving. Pray with them. 
pray for them, help feed them. One of the greatest pleasures of, of, of ministering here to me, y'all, and I don't like to single people out necessarily, and I know I probably singled this one out probably more so than others, but one of the greatest pleasures I have when we do these outreach-oriented ministries is watching Tony Mallory mingle with the crowds. I love it. He can relate to them, he can love them, and he can pray for them. He helps me. He does. Second thing. Almost, almost committed, guys. Listen to other people. Listen to other people who are different than you. Listen to other people who, who have different life experiences than you do. We've talked about this before. We like to, it's just human nature. We like to hang out with people who are like us, who look like us, who talk like us, who think like us. Not everybody has the same experiences we have. You know, there's, there's, there's a reason that so many Christians have so many different political and social views because we don't have the same personal experiences. Get to know people. We want to jump to conclusions so quickly, so easily. We want to hold on to our own opinions when it comes to some of these social issues so strongly. We want to deny that somebody else or some other group of people is, 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 is being rejected or, or marginalized. Listen to other people. Two more things and I'm done. Of all of the teachings of the church that I have ever come across, one of the best teachings on this, on, on social uh, really one of the best teachings on politics in general, but one of the best teachings on, on social justice comes from the Catholic Church. If you've never paid attention to this, I want you to go home and I want you to go and I want you to Google Catholic social beliefs. Catholic social beliefs. Catholic social teaching. Sorry. Catholic social teaching. Now this is an official teaching of the Catholic Church and it covers all kind of stuff. It covers it covers, uh, it covers Teaching on public life, it covers teaching on politics, social justice, society, excuse me, society in general, economics, and it is completely grounded in discipleship to Jesus Christ. It's one of the coolest things I've ever seen it is, it, uh, in talking about societal issues and political issues because it is, I, you can just see it, it's, it's completely grounded in Jesus, completely grounded in discipleship. I don't, you're not reading something that's, that's coming from an ideological conservative or an ideological liberal because, because these ideas, they just cross these lines, man. They're back and forth, back and forth. Yeah, we believe in the sanctity of life. We believe in preserving human life all day long. You know what else we believe in? Caring for God's creation like we were told to do. You know what else we believe in? We believe in caring for the marginalized through systemic advocacy. See how those lines cross? society, one's on the right, one's on the left. Secondly, this is our book of discipline. <laughs> these, are, these, these are the rules and the procedures and the policies of the United Methodist Church. Within this book of discipline, there is a section called Social Principles. I think it starts on like page 100, page 105, somewhere around there. You can read this for free. You don't have to go buy a copy of this. You can go to cokesbury.com. You can download a whole PDF of this thing. But we actually have social principles 
in our book. They're not church law, they're not legal, they're not set in stone, but they're basically ideas about society, social justice, politics, those types of things that, again, are based on Scripture. And they, call, they cause us to pause. They cause us to rethink our ideologies. And there's a whole section on that. Social principles. Check it out. Let me read to you one more thing from Foster. And uh, Daryl, Kevin, y'all don't mind? Y'all can come on up. <clears throat> this is how he concludes his chapter on social justice. And I'm just going to read a few sentences here. It's easy to feel that social justice issues are far beyond our small abilities, and most of those certainly are. But even so, there is much that we can do. First, we can open ourselves to the possibility that God may want to use us in a significant way. History is full of ordinary people, just like Amos, who were called to positions of influence far beyond their intentions. What else can we do? We can support relief agencies in their good work, both financially and through volunteer efforts. Such agencies need our help. Fifth, we can go beyond relief and become involved politically. Life is political, and if we refuse to, if we refuse to influence public policy, somebody else will. We can take the work of prayer, finally. We can take the work of prayer into the social arena. It is necessary work if we are to defeat the demonic principalities and powers incarnated in so many institutional structures. That's a powerful statement. Remember, people are not our enemies. Paul writes that. People are not our enemies. We are, our enemies are principal, principles and power, principalities and powers of this world. Principalities. Y'all pray with me. Gracious God, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for, for, uh, for your written word. We thank you, God, for speaking to us through the prophets. Thank you, God, for allowing us and helping us to know your will, even though it may be so difficult for us to swallow, God. Help us to know your will. Help us to know your will, God, not ours. Help us not to be so much influenced by secular ideologies as we are influenced by Jesus and as we are influenced by Holy Scripture. For it's in the name of Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.